Hello, and welcome to Lesson 3 of the Sermon on the Mount. Today, I'm going to start in the middle with the Lord's Prayer. Most of the content of this prayer comes from Hebrew scriptures and teachings familiar to pious Jews of Jesus' time. Matthew probably took the material and organized it into a new format for his community of disciples. Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus' purpose is to take the great ethical tradition of Judaism and weave it into Christianity. Jesus begins, This is how you are to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To the Hebrew people, a name revealed a person's very nature and character. Psalm 9 verse 11 says, Those who know your name trust in you. Because God had consistently revealed his nature to the Hebrew people in his words and deeds, God's people knew his faithfulness and love, and with the knowing came trust. All of this is implied in the psalmist's use of the word name. The word hallowed means holy, but much more. The word also means separate and unique. We pray that God's name will be treated with more respect than anyone else's name. In the negative, we are told in Exodus not to take the name of the Lord in vain or in a trivial way. We are not to idly utter God's name. Ultimately, God will ensure that God's name is kept holy, but we are called to reverence the name of God in our lives now. The late Bible scholar, Father Demetrius Dumb, suggests that in this petition, we pray to be constantly aware of God's true nature. Which traits of God's nature are you most grateful for? It's worth thinking about as you pray. We next pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Father Dumb describes God's kingdom as a happy prospect, as God's dream for us all, much as a good father cherishes dreams for his children. His words take me back to my mid-30s. My father and I were on the cramped back porch of my childhood home, standing by the big old chest freezer. How well I remember digging through that freezer for vegetables from our garden, which helped to feed a family of 11. I don't remember the first part of our conversation, but I do remember the part when my father looked at me and said, Oh, I wish I could have given you kids more. My father had never talked to me like that, and I was shocked. I managed to say, Oh, oh Daddy, you gave us plenty. I suppose he was expressing to me his cherished dreams of gifts he would have liked for his children, and I'll never forget it. God's kingdom is not a human project. It will be fully realized only at the end of time. But until then, we are called to reflect God's goodness to others, giving them glimpses of the kingdom. St. Paul describes the kingdom of God in Romans as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus embodied these characteristics, and as we learn in the book of Revelation, Jesus is constantly knocking on our door. The kingdom is near. 
In this same petition, we also pray for God's will to be realized. Figuring out God's will used to make me nervous. I thought it was a puzzle I had to solve correctly to get God's approval. And I rarely expected God's will to be something I would like. But now I believe that God is not necessarily trying to thwart or correct my will. Maybe God shares my deepest desires and wants for me what I want for myself, only more and better. The novel Green Dolphin Street is one of my favorites, and I have a favorite quote from it. The main character is Marguerite. The man she has loved since childhood has married her sister and moved far away. Her parents have died and no longer need her care. She feels abandoned and depressed and decides to talk to the mother superior of a nearby convent. Their short conversation goes this way. The mother superior asks, because your parents are gone, because your earthly lover has failed you, you imagine that God also has withdrawn his presence? Marguerite answers emphatically, yes. The mother superior shakes her head and says, the way in which the human race perpetually insults Almighty God is quite deplorable. It really is deplorable that humanity has blamed God's will for so much through the ages. Marguerite's sorrow does not mean God wanted or caused disappointment and loss for her. It does mean that more than one path can lead us to God's will. We don't always make good choices. When things don't turn out the way we had planned, it's not a punishment from God. God can use everything we do, no matter how we look at it, to bring about good. The prophet Micah gives us a straightforward way to stay in God's will. He says, our responsibility is only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk humbly with your God. From this point in the Lord's Prayer, we pray for things we need. Give us today our daily bread. We're not sure that the word daily is the most accurate translation in this petition. Does it mean the bread we as humans need for nourishment? Or does it refer to the living bread of the Eucharist? We're not sure. We are sure that we are praying for sustenance from God. Even though I've often said, I'm starving, I've never once suffered from lack of food in my life. But throughout the world between 2014 and 2016, about 795 million people did not have enough food to be food secure. Some of these people live in the United States and many of them are children. This petition is a way for those of us who have plenty to pray for those who live in need daily. It also challenges us to look for ways to help. We can find out who's hungry in our city, maybe even in our church congregation, and donate food, money, or our time. We can educate ourselves about stereotypes and misconceptions about hunger and poverty. We can learn about nutrition. We can avoid wasting food. The next petition is complex. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus knew how to forgive, praying during his crucifixion, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In the Our Father, we ask to forgive like Jesus did. This is not impossible, even though it seems like it to me. Our baptism empowers us to do the works of Jesus, and the Gospel of John tells us that we will do even greater works than Jesus. And forgiveness is not just a personal matter between two people. We are all in this together. When we choose to let go of our hurts and move on, healing flows out to the whole Christian community. Admitting we have faults and need to be forgiven makes it easier to forgive others. This is called forbearance, the willingness to forgive. Thomas Akempis said that our peace in this life should depend on humble forbearance rather than the absence of adversity. In other words, people are going to hurt you. Do your best to let it go. And one last thought. Maybe when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we would do well to forgive ourselves for being human. That's never been a sin anyway. The last thing we ask of God for ourselves is, do not subject us to the final test, but deliver us from the evil one. Or, as we have memorized the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I agree with your commentary that exploring different translations helps make rote prayer more meaningful for us. The Greek word for test here is parasmos, and it can also mean temptation. When translated as test, it most probably refers to the Jews' expected moment of testing or trial between good and the evil one that comes at the end of life. The Bible may not tell us the origin of evil in the world, but it never denies there is an evil power opposing God. We pray that God will be near at this time. If we use the word temptation instead of test, the prayer becomes different. My most common temptations come from my chronic and sometimes cherished shortcomings. I'm tempted often to judge other people's actions. That never brings me joy, but it sure is hard to resist. I have many others, and you have your own, right? When I can resist giving in to these weaknesses, I cooperate with God's will for me. I pray often for God to remove my shortcomings. After working on this lecture, I'll pray the Our Father with more attention. Remember a couple of things about praying. Father Jerome Codell says that no matter how imperfect, we can count any attempt to pray as prayer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, true prayer does not depend on the individual, but solely upon the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows our needs. And now we're ready to go back to the beginning of Matthew's chapter 6. To Jews serious about their faith, Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting were the three great works supporting a pious or righteous life. Throughout this study, we see that righteousness is one of Matthew's key themes.
His first verse of chapter 6 reveals Jesus' concern that religious deeds be backed up by the right spirit and motive. First, almsgiving. Matthew makes it clear that giving alms is righteous, but not when used to demonstrate one's own generosity. The call to give alms to the poor is found in the book of Tobit, where no one seems to be exempt. If you have but little, Tobit says, do not be afraid to give alms, even of that little. My mother gave alms from her little. At the time this happened, all my siblings still lived at home, a small 1950s home. A large family we knew from a nearby parish had lost their father very suddenly. Soon after, they made plans to move away, but for some reason, they had to vacate their home about a week before they intended to leave Arkansas. My mother invited the family to stay with us for several days. I was only about six, and I remember it as an adventure. But what my older sister remembers is coming home late and finding every bed in the house taken. I don't see how there could have been any floor space left either. <laughs> but that was my mother. If she saw someone in need, she would find a way to give from whatever she had. Prayer is the second great pious act of Jesus' day. And praying is righteous, but not when it's used to demonstrate one's exceptional holiness. Jesus tells us not to be hypocrites when we pray. The word means actor. Actors are pretenders, playing a role on stage before an audience and seeking applause and a good review in the newspapers. They're not who they're pretending to be. Evidently, many Jews in Jesus' time were only acting the part. Jesus prayed publicly, as was customary, but never as a performer. And often, he went to pray alone. Have you ever thought about how Jesus was able to stay sane after his ministry unfolded and he began to realize what God was going to ask of him as his followers began to go away, as his daily life became a dangerous trap? I can only imagine that he must have been constantly praying to his Father. I'll go back once more to my childhood. My father prayed every night, kneeling by his bed. He didn't stay up late, so I saw him night after night go into his bedroom and kneel down. I have no idea what or how he prayed, but once I grew up, I realized it didn't matter. The important thing is that he never missed this daily contact with God. The third religious practice required of Jews was fasting, and it has all but disappeared. Pious Jews fasted two days a week. This self-denial was their way of disciplining the body and living out the words of Deuteronomy that we do not live by bread alone. Jesus brings up the importance of motive again, telling people fasting is not a righteous act if they advertise their fasting by looking pitiful. Ulterior motives for fasting still are common. Fasting to fit into clothes, to look younger or more stylish, or fasting out of habit during Lent. 
Genuine motives for fasting all support the purest motive, and that is to develop a closer relationship with God. Food can distract us from God, but fasting doesn't have to refer to food. Is there something in your life that consumes a disproportionate amount of your time and attention? This could be another person, a job, or an unhealthy habit. Whatever you choose to fast from, make sure it is something that will create time and space for God. A closer relationship is sure to follow. When we make it a priority to strengthen our conscious contact with God, it will be easier for us to comply with verses 19 to 21, the last three verses of our lesson. It's all about what we hold as treasure. Father Donald Sr. defines treasure as that which commands the allegiance of one's heart. Treasure is what we assume will keep us safe. If we look around us, at least in this country, we would conclude that our treasure lies in tangible things. We have much more than we need and never enough place to store it. Tangible possessions are not bad in themselves, and the number or the worth of those possessions is not the ultimate problem. The problem is that our possessions tend to consume us and separate us from God. Why? Because our hearts and our attention follow our treasure. Jesus is asking us to store up possessions like truth and honesty, trust in God's care, forgiveness, and good works toward others. These won't take up much room, and they will keep us close to God. Then we can stay there and stop worrying. Instead, we can look forward more and more to the day that both our hearts and our treasures will be in a very safe place. I recently encountered an interesting fellow on a Saturday morning coffee run. I said good morning, and so did he. I commented on the beautiful morning. He answered like this. Every morning is a beautiful morning. How could it not be? We have so much. Look, you're alive and walking. You have your husband and your car. What else do we need? And then he added, Jesus is all we need. That man had a treasure stored in the right place and not likely to be lost. <music>